some reason, a lot of animals are going to turn up in this talk. Dogs and lions and the three pigs, the three little pigs. like to take stock of what we've been doing so far. We switched from a rather open attentiveness to the breath last night and this morning, and then began to station our attention. For many of us at the nose, some people are at the abdomen, at a specific point, at some place where the breath has an impact, passes through. It's called guarding the breath in some of the ancient commentaries where your awareness is the guard and it's watching very carefully over the breath. Especially throughout the nostrils, it's the image it seems very close to what's happening. The air comes in and the air goes out and you're right there, right at the gate. The gate which is also an exit an entrance and an exit. Some of why we've been doing this has already been mentioned. We'll just repeat some of that briefly and um, elaborate a bit as to the significance, at least some of the significance of doing a practice of this sort. first set of animals that come in are dogs. The dog runs after the bone. You ever heard that phrase? You don't have to have heard it. You know what I mean. This always intrigued me for years, really. More recently, in a special way. Just sometimes seeing Someone, sometimes even myself, throwing a piece of wood and the dog runs right after it. Brings it back, you throw it again, the dog runs right after it. And go on indefinitely. Dogs seem so happy to just run after whatever you throw. Or a bone, even more enticing. It's said that dogs run after the bone. That if somebody throws the bone, or it could be anything, and the dog runs after the object. But tigers don't run after the object. They look at where the object's coming from. Can you feel the difference? The tiger doesn't just go unthinkingly running after the bone or whatever it is. It watches. Where did that come from? It looks at the one who threw it. That image is, I think, a really wonderful one for what we're doing. We all have dog mind. Nothing personal, and I don't know most of you. (laughs) But you are human beings. And all of us, it's actually quite normal. If you go into any mind at random, you'll find that it's preoccupied. 
We all, it's, it's a normal, that's the way minds are. They're, pre, they're constantly preoccupied about something. Just my mind, or are we all in this together? <laughs> Starting to feel a little lonely, those. You have such strong samadhi looks on your face. <laughs> yeah. By the way, while you're listening, it's a good chance to practice something. I hope you're listening. And in the process of doing that, allow the breath in that is in the background and see if it helps with the quality of listening. As you get the hang of it, it does, it seems. Very much so sometimes. In the work that I do, I have to give many interviews. And one way to stay fresh that I've found for quite a while now, it's been extremely helpful, is when listening to someone, I'm also with the breath. Now, for those of you who have not done this, you might think that I'm divided, that shouldn't I just listen and forget about the breath? But actually, it helps a lot. And often it feels very unified. It's not two things. But try it. See if, while you're listening, if you can just... Stay in touch with the in-breath and the out-breath and see if that makes a difference. Okay. The dog runs after the bone. It means that the mind is constantly throwing things up and we're constantly running after them. It doesn't take much. It doesn't even have to be in the mind. Finally, it is in the mind, but sounds... We get annoyed if someone makes a sound. We go on a whole journey about it. So that whatever comes up in the mind, there's a tendency to get lost in it, to run after it. And in this case, the frame of reference is we're attempting to learn to unify the the mind by means of coming back to the breath. And so we're constantly running away from the breath. The mind throws up something. Oh, wow, we go after that one and then something else. And it keeps going like that. Now, tiger mind, use a few of these images, perhaps they'll help you feel your way into this samadhi practice. Tiger mind, we stay at the source. We We stay right there at the mind and all kinds of things come up. tantalizing things that claim our attention. Say, hey, get involved with me, even though you're going to suffer if you do. Some thought that's going to make you feel bad. Some worry, some old memory, perhaps a painful one. Some future anticipation. And some of it, nice too, you know, fantasies. But we do a lot of running after the bone. The practice is more, in a sense, to grow into the mind of the tiger, where we remain stationed. We remain stationed, in this case, at the breath. And many things will come and go, and that's fine. We're not trying to suppress anything or edit anything out. It's simply, we stay where we, where we want to be. Another image, 
that the ancient Chinese teachers used was to always stay in the position of the host. This has many levels of meaning, but one level is similar to what's being said here. That is, let's say you're giving a party. You're always there. Everyone keeps coming and going and visiting you. But the host is stationary. It says, never forget that you're the host. Don't suddenly lose track of the fact that you're the host and become a guest. Forget that you threw the party. Maybe get lost in it. They all have pretty much a similar message. If we want to place our attention somewhere, can we do that? And can we stay there for as long as we'd like to do that? In other words, can we decide how long we're going to stay with a particular object or, and decide when we want to leave it? Right now, we can't. We're very much taken, taken up by all these different things that visit us. We go racing after them. Uh, some of this has a, there's even a technical term for it called papancha or proliferation in the Buddhist teachings. I'd like to give you an example for, which may be common. Maybe you've had it already even though the re- retreat's not that old. Papancha or proliferation. Let's say you, um, your knee begins to hurt. There's pain in your knee. And it goes for a while and then suddenly there's a thought. My knee is in pain. That's not papancha. That thought is very close to what's happening. It's just a description. It's true. Your knee hurts and the thought comes up. My knee is in pain. Okay. But then if there isn't a real attentiveness, what can happen is the thought that my knee is in pain starts to proliferate. It spreads. My knee's in serious pain. <laughs> Not only is it in serious pain, but I'm starting to get worried here. <laughs> Not only am I worried, but I'm miserable, terrified, and I'm angry at this place. <laughs> and it's getting worse as I, as I think. And the thoughts start going further and further away from the original experience. The original experience and the thought that said, your knee is in pain, that's fine. It's helpful even. But then as it starts to go on, some of it becomes outrageous. And as you know, the mind is shameless. Have you found that yet, that your mind is shameless? Good. I mean, not good that it's shameless, but it's good that we all see that. It can literally make up anything it wants to about anything and then believe it. And then who gets stuck with all that? Us. But of course, it's all us. We're doing the whole thing. It's a one man and a one woman show. It's all pouring out of our own heart. So eventually, the proliferation gets to the point where you start uh, looking at going to the office and finding out where the nearest emergency room is. And if they can, if you can be rushed there. You don't know quite what, but it, gangrene has got to be around the corner for your knee. And, of course, people reassure you. 
But that kind of thing. So that's the dog runs after the bone. We, you, we get caught up. We get lost. We get lost in the productions of the mind. And we suffer. Now, so far I think what's been emphasized about the value of, of the samadhi practice has been the unifying of it. That is, the, the mind is all this running about. I have to use my hands to talk. How are we going to become a tiger rather than a dog? And the training that we're doing is designed to help us establish that. That is, step number one, we begin to see how active the mind is, how preoccupied it is. And if you're new at this, and I know a number of you are, it can be quite discouraging especially if you have a a well-paid and very highly respected job somewhere. Perhaps you have an advanced degree and are an excellent brain surgeon or accountant or whatever you do, and suddenly you see that your mind is totally out of control. You can't even follow one in-breath. And you're president of some bank. What's going on here? Is it just an off day? Actually, uh, when you come down to it, the world is being run by people with minds like this. (laughs) And it's a wonder we're not in worse shape than we are, with more accidents on the road than we have and uh, just a worse situation. So we're doing fairly well, considering what we're working with or not working with. Okay, now, if you have a stomach to stay here for a while, and you begin to see this, you can actually attain something. There are a number of different maps of the process of the the development of calmness and steadiness of mind. And in one of the maps, there are different stages as you move through. It's all been charted for centuries by yogis just like ourselves who've watched just what happens if you do this practice. And one such attainment is called attaining the cascading mind. Cascading mind is a mind that's cascading like water. You know, like a waterfall is just wild. And then you might say, well, what kind of an attainment is that? I mean, that's no attainment. I came here with that. Maybe we'll give you a little certificate. (laughs) Stage one, you've attained the cascading mind. I don't think you'd want to show it to anyone, though. But it's an attainment in the following way, or it's potentially an attainment. To come to see our predicament, to come to see, oh, this is the way my mind is. It's not that IMS is making your mind this way. It must be in the food. (laughs) They don't let us talk. Well, that's part of it, definitely. The fact that you don't talk means the mind starts talking. You can hear the mind, how much it's talking. We can't absorb ourselves in so many things. We have fewer escape hatches. We're closing more off all the time. Those of you who get away for the weekend, you're lucky. It's going to get tighter as we go on. More grim, no fun at all. (laughs) 
So the attainment of the cascading mind is beginning to see the actual situation, that my mind is really like this. And this is the mind that's signing checks, deciding to get married, raising children, leading governments, countries. And it's a a choice in the road, a very important choice in the road. One fork in the road, you get discouraged and feel awful. That's not the way of the Dharma, though. That's the way of the world, really. If we succeed, we feel good. And if we don't, we feel bad. And here, it's not so much success or failure, but wisdom and foolishness. It's not so much good or bad, but are we learning from it? That is, the fact that the mind is like that is true. And to be able to see our predicament is step number one, because we can't do anything about our situation until we see it. So you have attained something if you've seen that. Don't get discouraged. Now you have a choice. You can now use that as material to make you feel bad about yourself. You just did a workshop at Interface on how to raise self-esteem and you have very high self-esteem. All gone as soon as you get here. (laughs) Wiped out. (laughs) No more self-esteem. Cascading mind. Wiped it out. Well, there's another way of looking at it. I mean, we have to say that or we'd be out of business here. But anyway, the other way of looking at it is is that we're now seeing what's really true. I mean, what's happening? Our mind is like this. Our mind is racing. There are just lots of different things coming up. No knowing what's going to turn up. Some of it's contradictory, inconsistent, totally out of our control. The mind thinks what it wants to think and feels what it wants to feel and and we're just there. And the other, so the other fork in the road, as you probably have guessed, is the path of practice, where we realize that, and that's a very positive step. Oh, this is the way my mind is, and it's not hopeless, it's workable, because that's what the teachings of the Dharma are saying, is that there's hope. If the Buddha isn't handing out or giving us hope, Not hope in some kind of sentimental way, but saying there are some actual things that we can do to improve our situation as human beings. We don't have to blindly suffer endlessly unto the grave. There's some things that can be done. And so when you see that, the cascading mind becomes the first step in learning how to help the mind become tame and useful and a friend rather than something that's so unpredictable that sometimes it's worse than what we think of as being our worst enemy. Okay, so a lot of what we've been doing, we're with the breath, we're taken away, we come back over and over and over again. Is that familiar? Okay, and we'll be doing more of that. Now, as you do that, And perhaps some of you are beginning to see even a little bit of certain signs that gradually the mind can learn to not always run after the bone. The mind can learn little by little how to just be stable, how to unify its energy so it doesn't uh, dissipate all of its beautiful life energy that we all have on so many projects that seem to bear no fruit. 
Maybe there's some useful things that go on in the mind. Of course there are, especially when we're using them in a, uh, let's say, where they're necessary. But so much of what the mind thinks up about itself is then the burden that it's stuck with. So little of it leads to genuine peace or fulfillment. Just listen to your mind and see if that's so. I mean, don't believe me. See if it's so for your own mind. It's a burden to have this mind sometimes. Well, what if we began to learn how to, instead of running after everything that happens, and it's not that we decide to run, somehow it's like that dog. The dog doesn't have to take a workshop on how to run after the bone. Bone goes and there goes the dog, right? And we're the same way. We sort of don't need to be trained in that. We've already come on the scene that way as human beings. And so this gentle, graceful, patient, unblaming, coming back to the breath over and over again. In the spirit more of a craftsman, just polishing something. And there's some benefits from it that may not be immediately apparent. Coming back to the breath time and time again. One benefit is that we're working with just one thing. I think the modern world is extreme in terms of the quantitative approach to everything. Somehow more of everything is better. And that's not true. We're fast losing sight of quality. So that most of us are, you know, we have five books on our night table and 11 books in the bathroom and we have 14 different projects going and, and we, we can talk to now two and three people on the phone by putting everyone on hold. <laughs> and there's a new TV where you look at the TV and in addition to watching one program on the upper right-hand corner, there's another program that you can watch and you can, that's small. So you can decide, well, should I stay with that one or this one? I think maybe this one's better. Flip it around. That one becomes big and the other one becomes small. Wonderful. <laughs> Just what we needed. And so it's, no one's, there's not much encouragement to just learn how to do one thing well. We're driving a car and it says, I'd rather be fishing or I'd rather be golfing. <laughs> I don't see anyone saying, I'd rather be driving, but they're driving. <laughs> And then you get out of your car and what do you see? People walking down the streets with earphones. They're not, they're totally tuned out to the environment that they're in. They're walking down, you know, up Mass Avenue in Cambridge, but they're listening to some Bach cantata or something. Or they're, it's some uh, language training that they're getting. So that no waste of time. We're jogging, but the jogging is just medicinal. So in the meantime, there's something else going on. We don't want to waste time. Well, the samadhi practice is dramatically old-fashioned. And it's very simple-minded. It's saying, just take this one thing. Can we do one thing and just really do it well? Just refine it and polish it. Now, you know that it's difficult because what the mind throws up is all this variety. All these different things. A lot of them are not things we would care to get lost in, but we do anyway. Painful emotions, painful memories, anticipations of the future, hopes. And the practice is, it's very nice, but just come back to the in-breath and the out-breath. Very simple. 
very unadorned, unromantic, unassuming. And it's very easy for us to underestimate the profound fruit that can come out of this simple operation. And that's one of the hardest aspects that we discussed in one of the discussion groups of teaching a samadhi practice is that we're asking people to do a very simple operation. Just be with the in-breath, be with the out-breath, be with the in-breath, be with the out-breath. It seems like a pretty simple-minded thing. And it's only natural. It's difficult for the mind to grasp that such a simple activity could lead to such profound fulfillment in certain ways. And it does. And in fact, it's the very simplicity that is the power. It really shouldn't be surprising. It's being undivided. We're learning how to be undivided, full. Giving our very best to this one thing. Now, as we more and more are able to do that, the energies of the mind are gathered together. Whereas before, so much energy is wasted on many projects that, in the mind that don't come to any fulfillment. Now, more and more we learn how to not run after them, not run after these objects, and begin to live in the breath. That's our way right now is the breath. We begin to live in the breath. Put another way, our awareness becomes more and more continuous. We're more and more able to be with an in-breath, be with an out-breath. And the mind becomes more quiet, becomes more still, and a still mind is a happy mind. It's another interesting observation. When you don't have any thoughts in the mind, you're happy. Because a lot of suffering is having unwanted thoughts. Even when we go to sleep, we have these dreams which plague us. They're unwanted thoughts, you know, and images. Fortunately, we have a few hours each evening when it's just pure, dreamless sleep. Finally, we can have some rest. And one of the reasons it's so comforting and healing, and we all need it, is because there's no I and mine in that period of time. It takes a break. Okay. So, something is being built here. And here's where we get to the three pigs. I'm going to need your help, especially parents, because I... Can you refresh my memories? The three... Do you remember there's something about... We're on the verge, I think, of a breakthrough in mythology. I'm not sure. But you might have to help. Are there three... Like one house is very flimsy and easy to blow down? Straw. Straw. And the wolf blows it down? Right. Then the next one is a little more firm? What? Sticks. sticks. Straw, sticks. And then the third one's what? Brick. And that one doesn't get... Okay, but now, the part that's missing for me is the, the last pig, what, he didn't go for immediate gratification... And so, therefore, he took care of himself. The others, they just wanted instant gratification, right? Okay, good. It is. The three little... (laughs) It turns out that the three little pigs is a very deep spiritual story. (laughs) I came to it, really, by accident. Let's assume it's true. It'll be more fun to think it's true. In Thailand, there's an image that's uh, used, Ajahn Lee, who's a... um, one of the teachers in the Thai forest tradition. And he talks about samadhi in exactly that way. And when I uh, was just thinking about it the other day, I realized, where, where have I heard this before? 
I realized, yeah, my mother told me this story. That's where I heard it before. Uh, I wonder if she knew Ajahn Lee. I don't think so. Anyway. <laughs> what Ajahn Lee says, he actually goes one step earlier, saying, if there's no work with the mind, no training of the mind, it's like being a homeless person. That is, you have no protection at all. It's a, as if you're on the street and your possessions are vulnerable and you're vulnerable to the weather because there's no cover. You're not protected. Much like homeless people that we know today, that we have today. And so, the beginnings of practice, the first kind of house is the straw house. And these correspond to technical terms, which are not so essential, but they're different degrees of samadhi. The first one is kanaka, or momentary samadhi. That is, we're able to be concentrated in a momentary way, and that's quite valuable and has depth. If we keep practicing, he says, and we go from, uh, what was it, straw, to bamboo. And the bamboo, which is upachara samadhi, or neighborhood samadhi, is much stronger. There's more steadiness there. And then finally, uh, apana samadhi, which is a brick, a brick house, and you're safe and protected. Uh, the upachara or neighborhood is in the neighborhood of the brick house, but it isn't the brick house yet. In the uh, uh, apana samadhi or the brick house, the mind rests in itself. That is, it's pure knowingness. There are no objects, there are no, no dualism, there are no objects to do anything to the mind. It's just uh, the joy of just being pure knowing, just being the mind knowing itself in that moment. And it can be it's sustained, and it's a very, very um, important. The movement in that direction. I don't want to give you a new set of goals to torture yourself with. <laughs> so am I living in a straw house? Am I living in a... Although we'll do, the mind will do that. You see, that's what minds do. It's now got, oh, fresh material. I'm tired of running after money, sex, power. I'll run after a nice house, a nice samadhi. Okay. Uh, let's make that a little bit more concrete. How is it a protection? Well, first off, and I think mainly you've heard this either here or somewhere else, we're developing samadhi, that is a steadiness of mind, an unwavering quality of mind, a calmness of mind, so that the mind is fit, the mind is prepared, it's fit, it's able to do vipassana. So it's in order to do something else. We're learning how to fashion this mind into a stable instrument so that it can really investigate and see the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, and the no-self of phenomena and of ourselves. So that means the samadhi is a kind of a medium to attain something. But that's not, that's true. That is, the, the development in samadhi uh, is the stronger the samadhi, the deeper the vipassana can be. They go together. As the samadhi gets deeper, the vipassana, the insight, can go penetrate more deeply. As the vipassana penetrates more deeply, 
the samadhi can go more deeply as well. We become much more calm after we understand something. And you'll see as the week goes on how those work together. We'll talk about it again. But there's another benefit which is very easy to overlook because in a very profound way, I feel, the breath and our awareness of the breath is not a means to anything. It's its own fulfillment. When you're right there with an in-breath, with an out-breath, fully experiencing an in-breath and an out-breath, you feel alive. And depending on how much wakefulness there is, there can be deep joy and happiness in just an in-breath that's breathed consciously. It has nothing to do with whether or not people love us or give us money or think that we're intelligent or how the, or the, how, what the weather is like. We just breathe freely and it feels very good. We're happy to breathe. Have you had an inkling of that? Even if it's just one in-breath or one out-breath, that grows. That grows until it's possible to pretty much have to give the, give the heart a kind of joy and peace when you want to. This is not enlightenment, but it's an extremely valuable capacity to give the heart delight. It becomes not so much accidental. We're more able to provide the heart with delight when we want to, when it needs it. Okay, now here's another, here's where we start getting into Ajahn Lee's and the three pigs, that house. The value of samadhi for vipassana is something we'll take up later on in the retreat. But for right now, let's see some ways in which this ability to come to the breath can be beneficial for us right now, can be a really good friend to us right now. And we don't have to wait even to get, become perfect in terms of samadhi. This has to do with getting out of harm's way. One of the very important uses of the samadhi practice is to learn how to get out of harm's way. Harm, in this instance, are all the many things that the heart churns up. Thoughts and emotions and attitudes and intentions to act that are destructive, painful, that lead to suffering. It could be a small thing like someone online ahead of you is taking too long and you become irritated. You have a choice. You can drown in irritation. It can just be for three seconds. It can just be three seconds, but those three seconds are three seconds of dukkha or suffering. And one of the uses of samadhi, both in our sitting practice and in daily life, is, the, is to provide us, provide us with, a, with a way of skillfully stepping aside avoiding harm without denial or repression. Let me give you very small examples of it. Anytime you're irritated, Probably you've been irritated here. Maybe it's too crowded sometimes or there's a long line in the bathroom or 
someone is taking too long or someone's taking too much food and there's not enough left for you or whatever it is, you can feel tension, some kind of tension, tension or anxiety. Now, at that point, you can, if you like, you can be tense and anxious. That's our God-given right. As Americans, we have the freedom to do that. If If you want to do that, good. Or, and here's the skillful use of samadhi, and the stronger samadhi is, the more we're able to do this, you can trade, you can exchange that particular possibility of feeling irritable for the breath. The exchange is something like this. You're beginning to feel irritability. And if you turn to the breath, in other words, you swap objects, essentially, if you can go to the breath instead of the irritability, what happens is you don't feed the irritability or the tension. And instead, you enter into the in-breath and the out-breath. And as that gets stronger, that has the ability to exert a calming effect and a stabilizing effect and a fulfilling effect right there in the moment. Now, you, you haven't uprooted that negative tendency, let's say, of impatience. Vipassana uproots that. Vipassana Wisdom uproots our deep tendencies, destructive and harmful tendencies. Samadhi doesn't do that. But what Samadhi can do is provide us with a a home so that we can skillfully avoid being victimized by some of the productions that come out of our own heart. Now, again, it's not meant to be suppression or repression or avoidance. It's just a skillful use of ourselves. Something is happening, and rather than getting lost in it, we switch to the breath. Now, in the sitting practice, we're do- that's what we're doing. What we're doing, in effect, looked at from a, a, a somewhat different way, uh, angle, is we have all these different objects in the mind that are competing for our attention. They want us to become involved in them. You know, a thought comes through, look at me, I'm wonderful. We grab onto it, and feelings and bodily states and so forth. The samadhi practice is saying, can you exchange all of those many possibilities for one possibility, the breath, so that the mind's natural tendency is to be preoccupied? All of us, it's normal. If you you feel your mind's preoccupied, so is mine. We all have that kind of mind. And the skill is in giving the mind another preoccupation, the breath. If we're lucky, that develops into something that we're really interested in. Preoccupation has a kind of negative tone to it, but it's something like that. As that deepens, as our ability to come and stay with the breath deepens, we now have an option that we didn't have before. Before, we had to struggle, deny, repress, intellectualize, act out some of these states. Now, we can get out of the way and we can enter into the in-breath and the out-breath as that gets stronger, especially as the awareness gets stronger and let go of what would be a few moments or longer of suffering. We short-circuit it. We prevent proliferation from happening by learning, oh, I can just go into my breath house and just breathe. Just be alive and breathe. I don't have to always be taken on this painful journey. Okay. Now, this is done in the sitting, and it's something that can be done so many places on this retreat. For example, we just had a, 
another retreat in Cambridge, and one yogi reported the following thing. There was no talking there either, and yet every time this person came close to other people, like the cooks or some of the people teaching, he felt great anxiety. And what he discovered, what he's anxious around people. Even, let's say, after the bell would ring and he would get up and everyone would make their way to the walking room, he felt tremendous self-consciousness. He wanted to get out of the meditation hall and to the walking room before anyone really saw how he got up from the cushion, etc. And he also noticed that this was signaled by a breath, a quality of breath, a gasping, not as dramatic as mine. And because we were working with the breath so much, he started to see that whatever it is he was doing, whatever emotional or mental problem, it had its expression in breathing. And so he had now an option. He just turned to the breath. And the breath, if you've tried this, you'll see, especially as it develops, the breath then goes from a gasping, held, very shallow breath. It, it softens, it relaxes. And then the mind does. Now, you're not manipulating the breath. You're just remembering to breathe. You're, you're breathing consciously. And the breath has that power of... It has a very good effect on the body and on the mind. And so, from time to time during this retreat, please make use of the breath in that way. Just learn how to do it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an art. Learn how you can turn to the breath sometimes and in the, and in the process of doing that, let go of some unnecessary suffering. just so that this is not misunderstood. It's not being advocated that you avoid your problems. Oh, what he's saying is, well, I've been doing that all along. Whenever I have a problem, I didn't know about the breath. I just duck into a movie or I call someone up or I'm, my head is in the refrigerator or I read a book. I know that one. I know that trick. I just absorb myself in something else and that way I can kind of not suffer so much. There is some similarity to that. Although as you go deeper into the breath, as it becomes very fine and available to you, I think the comparison becomes less apt because it's more successful. But nonetheless, there is similarity. And it isn't being advocated that you avoid your problems because as you know, the heart of Vipassana is looking at what's there. But you know, there are times when we're not able to look at something. There are times when we're just not in a position to do that. Or it's not an either, it's not an either or kind of thing. Uh, this is a very handy way of giving you rest when you need it. Giving the mind rest when it's exhausted. You kind of drop into your breath house or whatever, whatever to call it. And this is another, to finish this up, as the samadhi practice deepens, 
you enter into realms of stillness and a mind that's more still is more spacious and happier. There is more joy and happiness in the heart, in a concentrated mind, in a, a mind that's gathered itself together. And you can learn, and it's actually very important to learn, how to drop into that space and to stay there for as long as you need it. No one can investigate forever. You, you don't do a Vipassana 24 hours a day. It would be impossible. Constantly you know, uh, examining phenomena to see how they're impermanent, see how they're suffering, to see how they're not self. You'd get a big headache from that. Moreover, just the energy that's used. So it's like the need for sleep and the need for activity. As the samadhi practice develops, what we've created for ourselves is a, a kind of sanctuary or a place that we can drop into, an inner sanctuary. It's yours. It doesn't belong to anyone else. And it's portable. You can take it with you. Where you can drop into some peace and allow the heart to heal itself, to regain its energies, and then come out and investigate and take on your problems to begin to look at whatever it was that you didn't feel up to. So it's not, uh, we're not suggesting running away, avoiding, or kind of ostrich type behavior at all. It's just more another tool so that we can skillfully guide our life. Moreover, something I've seen in my own practice, although the samadhi practice doesn't uproot a lot of these troublesome tendencies, it seems that if you can drop into the, make the choice of going into your brick house or bamboo house or whatever house we have, or it's turned to the breath sometimes instead of being swallowed by these other possibilities, those other possibilities start to become a little weaker. It, it has to do with conditioning. It's like if you exercise this arm, the muscle becomes very strong. If you don't, it withers. Similarly, if we, we've all had a lot of practice latching on to destructive feelings and thoughts. And so those are pretty strong. Now, what if we had another option? That it isn't so fatalistic if we can just decide to not go on that negative journey and instead turn to the breath. Well, some of the negativity seems to get a little weaker that way. Again, it's not uprooted, but some of its potency seems to uh, fall away. Okay. um, What I hope is that at least some of this can be helpful in terms of us um, drawing upon certain energy and interest and inspiration at times when it it seems awfully tedious. You know, I, I know what you're going through. It's not like I've skipped that step or I'm skipping it now. I do know it's an extremely worthwhile project. I have absolutely no doubt about that. But when you're beginning, and many of you are beginning, you're being asked to do a very simple and very plain activity, just come back to the in-breath and the out-breath time and time again. And perhaps it'll be helpful if you have a sense that it's part of a, a more comprehensive approach to spiritual life. It seems all the spiritual, great spiritual traditions, it's not unique to Buddhism, uh, require a foundation of a stable and concentrated mind, whether it's prayer, or whatever practice is you've, you've known, 
it seems that the spiritual life is premised on that foundation so that the mind can gather its energies and investigate and come to know ultimate truth. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.